all you hardheads, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, good whatever it is, wherever you are in this beautiful world of ours. Welcome to the Hardheaded Sports Podcast, ladies and gentlemen, episode 9 of the Hardheaded Sports Podcast, hosted by me, Nick Ryan. It's wonderful to have you here today. I am really excited. I've got a great show for you today. No technical difficulties to start off, which is always a blessing. So thankfully, I think the technical issues that we were having in the last couple of episodes of the show have finally subsided. Fingers crossed. Again, knock on wood. I'm going to keep knocking on wood uh, until I am for sure that the problems that we were having are are gone and they're not coming back but regardless of that i'm really excited about the show today we're going to be covering a whole list of sports going to be covering some basketball and some baseball as well first time for baseball on the show uh, not that i dislike baseball any more than any other sport but it just kind of uh, is swept under the rug currently with how much nfl and nba stuff are going on right now but um i'm super excited can't wait to get into it Today, we are going to start with Matthew Stafford and the Lions. The Lions and Matthew Stafford have essentially agreed to part ways. The ownership and Matthew Stafford met uh, over the weekend, and they have mutually decided that they are going to part ways. And I am so excited for Matthew Stafford. I think Matthew Stafford is one of the most underrated quarterbacks in the league today. Uh, I think that potentially with a couple of more playoff wins, championship appearances, and uh, hopefully for him, a Super Bowl appearance, he will end up being a Hall of Fame quarterback one day. He certainly got the rest of the criteria down. Uh, multiple 4,000-yard passing seasons, one of eight quarterbacks to actually have a 5,000-yard passing season. We'll get into all of that eventually, but I am super excited for Matthew Stafford to finally be rid of the Detroit Lions franchise. Um it's fantastic for him. I think he's an underrated quarterback. And now that the teams have officially decided to part ways, he's going to get a fresh opportunity with a new team. And I've actually already made a video on which team I think is the best fit for Stafford. It is my Philip Rivers retired video. You can go and search for that on YouTube. But for those of you who are going to uh, maybe want to be spared the click, I think that the Colts are probably the best destination for Matthew Stafford. And I think that the Colts should do everything in their power to trade for Matthew Stafford. But uh, the point of conversation for this specific topic is specifically how the Lions have managed to waste a potential Hall of Fame quarterback. And for all of you Lions fans out there, this is going to not be pleasant. This is going to be an expose on how awful the franchise has been recently. And by recently, I mean pretty much the entire way through the franchise's lifespan, but uh, specifically from the point that Matthew Stafford was drafted to now, how the Lions have somehow managed to waste a potential Hall of Fame quarterback's career with bad coaching, bad drafting, and just really bad support for the quarterback throughout Matthew Stafford's 12-year career in Detroit. Now, I'm not normally a stats person, I, it's not that I don't acknowledge stats. I'll use stats in my arguments, but I'm more of a logical, explain, talk it out kind of guy. I'm not the type of guy to just take a look at the stats and read the stats straight from my computer, uh, straight from my notebook. I'm never that type of person to just read stats cold-handedly to try and prove my point, but I'm going to do that today because when I was looking up stats to write down for this specific topic today, 
I was absolutely blown away by the the things that I found. I didn't think it was going to be this bad, but oh boy, it is going to be this bad. So strap yourselves in, ladies and gentlemen. Grab some popcorn. Make sure your seatbelts are on. And again, for, to all you to all you Lions fans out there, I'm extremely sorry for the pain that I'm about to uh, regurgitate for you. Uh, I'm sure this is not going to be pleasant, but regardless of that, here we go. Um, now, a disclaimer, all of these stats that I'm about to present to you are going to be from Pro Football Reference, which I believe to be a extremely accurate and probably one of the best sports referencing um, sites for professional football that there is. If uh, I think it's probably the predominant one. But regardless of that, all these stats have been collected through Pro Football Reference. The Lions really have wasted Matthew Stafford. In 165 games, Matthew Stafford has a 62.6% completion rating. He has passed for 45,109 yards, 282 touchdowns, 144 interceptions. He's had eight individual 4,000-yard passing seasons. He's had one 5,000-yard passing season, and he is one of eight NFL quarterbacks to ever do it. Some of the names that... He joins on that list, Peyton Manning, Tom Brady, Drew Brees, Patrick Mahomes. Um, so very good company, especially in recent memory when it comes to quarterbacks on that list. And he's had, for the most part, an extremely durable career. He's only missed 27 games in his entire career, and he started every single game for the Detroit Lions over an eight-year span between 2011 to 2018. Now, whether or not you think that Matthew Stafford is a Hall of Fame quarterback, that's up to you. I think he has the potential to be a Hall of Fame quarterback. I'm going to say he's a Hall of Fame quarterback for the sake of this segment. Obviously, if he has a couple of more or playoff wins, because he actually doesn't have a single playoff win. He's lost all three of his playoff appearances, but I don't attribute that to Matthew Stafford. I definitely attribute that to the Detroit Lions. Matthew Stafford, if he gets a chance with whatever team that he is going to, I hope that he has the chance to win a couple of playoff games, maybe go to uh, AFC or NS NFC championship game, and potentially a Super Bowl. That would definitely bolster the resume. It wouldn't be the first time that at the end of Matthew Stafford's career, if he doesn't have a Super Bowl victory, he doesn't have all those playoff wins, it wouldn't be the first time that those types of quarterbacks have been let into the Hall of Fame. Um, Dan Marino, a Hall of Fame quarterback, doesn't have a Super Bowl ring, so it's not out of the ordinary, but... Even in 12 seasons, and you know, keep in mind, Matthew Stafford is 33, so he does have about four or five more seasons technically sliding out of his prime, but he does have more seasons in his prime. He's got a lot more work to he, – he, he's going to do a lot more work in the next coming years or so. So, But with that stat line by itself, Matthew Stafford is definitely one of the better quarterbacks in the league. I think he's woefully underrated, uh, and part of the reason is because the Detroit Lions have been – perennially one of the worst teams in the league um, apart from a pair of playoff ex uh, playoff appearances so in Matthew Stafford's 12 years as a starter and this is where we're going to kind of just go full pan reading of the notes here and I'm going to hit you with some cold hard facts again I'm not normally a fan of me just sitting here and reading off my notes instead of talking to you directly to you explaining my position but here we go in Matthew Stafford's 12 years as a starter, he has been one of the top 10 most sacked quarterbacks. Again, that is the, one of the top 10 most sacked quarterbacks in the NFL in seven 
of Matthew Stafford's 12 years as a starter. So seven out of the 12 seasons, he's been a top 10 most sacked quarterback. He was he was the 21st most sacked quarterback his rookie season, and that's when he only played 10 games. Easily, he could have been in the top 10 in sacks that year if he played every single game, and he only played three games his second year. I believe 2012, 2013, and 2019 were the other three years that he wasn't in the top 10 for most sacked quarterbacks. I believe one year he was like tied for 15th, so he's always been around that ballpark definitely in the top 20 for pretty much his entire career but for the for the sake of the topic I narrowed it down to top 10 he has played eight straight seasons and was a so the eight straight seasons being from 2011 to 2018 eight straight season and he was a top 10 sack QB in six of those eight seasons and was a top 10 sack quarterback in five straight seasons let me read that again he was one of the top 10 most sacked quarterbacks in five straight seasons between 2014 and 2018. And you can say, well, Matthew Stafford was throwing the ball a lot. The Lions have never had a really good running game this decade, as we'll get into. But, and you, and you can, you know, acknowledge that point. But curiously enough, the three years that he threw the ball the most in his career was in 2011, 2012, and 23. And only in 2011 was that a year in which he was not a top 10, or excuse me, he was a top 10 sack quarterback. So in 2012 and 2013, he was not in the top 10 sack quarterback. 2011 was the only year out of the three years in which he threw the ball the most. In addition to that, Matthew Stafford has only had one 1,000-yard rusher in his time with the Detroit Lions. If anybody wants to take a guess, I'll give you a couple seconds to guess who that actually is. No cheating, no looking it up. That 1,000-yard rusher was Reggie Bush in the 2013 season. Other than Reggie Bush, the next closest rusher to the 1,000-yard mark that the Lions have had since Matthew Stafford has been the starting quarterback was Joyke Bell. <laughs> Some people are definitely going, who the heck is that? But... Lions fans, I'm sure you have an inkling of who that is. Next uh, next closest guy to Reggie Bush, Joyke Bell in the 2014 season with 860 rushing yards. You might say, well, that's a little strict. You know, it's, it's difficult to have a 1,000-yard rusher in the NFL. And I agree. But apart from Joyke Bell and Reggie Bush, there was only two other players that rushed for more than 700 yards in a season with Matthew Stafford as the starting quarterback. That's Michael LeSure in 2012 and Kevin Smith in 2009. So four out of the 12 years, Stafford has had a running back rush for more than 700 yards on a season. That is certainly not a good running game. That definitely puts a load on Matthew Stafford. And even with the load being predominantly on Matthew Stafford, he has managed to have, again, uh, eight individual 4,000-yard rushing seasons and a 5,000-yard rushing season, which is absolutely incredible uh, that you have that much passing and uh, and you're able to perform that well with it. Now, now, with that being said, the one thing that the Lions have actually done a really good job of supplying Matthew Stafford with is wide receivers. Um, that's pretty much the only thing that they've done well. Uh, Stafford has always had a lot of people to throw to. Calvin Johnson, Golden Tate, Nate Burleson, Anquan Bolden, Brandon Pettigrew, Eric Ebron, Marvin Jones, Kenny Galladay. 
those names are probably the ones that you would be the most familiar with. So moving on to the defensive side of things, in Stafford's 12 seasons with the Lions, the Lions have had a top 10 defense only once. That season was the 2014 season when the Lions went 11-5 and and lost in the wild card round to a Tony Romo-led Cowboys team. And if you remember, that was probably Tony Romo's best year as a quarterback. I think he had like 34 touchdowns, 9 interceptions, um, around 3,700 passing yards. A really good season for Tony Romo. That was actually the last season that Tony Romo played mostly in full before Dak Prescott took over the starting job. Oh, and by the way, that 2014 season, which was probably Stafford's best year with the Lions, not necessarily in terms of numbers, but in terms of where they got to uh, uh, in the playoffs, again, losing in the wildcard round, that's about as far as they ever got, but that was the most promising year, and that was the first year under uh, Jim Caldwell. By the way, that 2014 season with the Lions... Stafford, the one that Stafford had the best defense, I believe they were number two and number three ranked in points and uh, yards. That was the season that he was the fourth most quarterback, the fourth most sacked quarterback in the NFL. He was sacked 48 times in the 2014 season. So even with a strong defense, the offensive line for the Detroit Lions completely impaired Matthew Stafford's ability to have an effective uh, if, uh, go any further than the wild card round and sure he, he would have had a good season but getting sacked 48 times in the NFL is a lot fourth most sacked quarterback in the NFL that year now I'm not really a math math person but when putting all the numbers together in terms of the defense for the Lions over the past 12 seasons the Lions on average had the 21st best defense in the NFL over Stafford Square so perennially a subpar defense this last season, the Lions had the worst defense in the league, ranked 32nd in both points allowed and yards allowed with a supposed defensive coach in Matt Patricia. Oh, and the Lions also had the worst defense in football Stafford's rookie season as well, ranked 32nd in all those categories during his rookie season. So it's kind of funny. Stafford starting off with having the worst defense in the NFL ends his career with the Lions with the worst defense in the NFL and you can absolutely argue that for as great as Matthew Stafford as underrated uh, as underrated as Matthew Stafford has been he has essentially found himself exactly back to square one with the franchise and speaking of coaches like we just did with Matt Patricia Stafford has had three different head coaches four different offensive coordinators which isn't an insane amount but three head coaches uh, specifically is trending towards the higher side Jim Schwartz, who went 29-51 and 51 as a head coach with one playoff appearance but was extremely inconsistent. He had six different losing streaks of four games or more, including two six-game losing streaks and one eight-game losing streak, which that's a, a lot of inconsistent losing right there. Then there's Jim Caldwell, who was the first quarterback to leave the team with a winning record since Joe Smith in the 1960s and early 1970s. And Jim Caldwell, a lot of people retrospectively will argue that he was probably the best coach for the Lions. And if they gave, gave Jim Caldwell a little bit more time, he could have done a little bit more with that franchise. But then an executive from the Patriots came over. His name is escaping me. And of course, the Lions hired Matt Patricia, who posted a 13-29 and record as a coach, but he seemed very apathetic, uninterested. And as a head coach, the team massively regressed under him. So... If all of that wasn't enough to support the argument that the Lions have completely wasted Matthew Stafford and the talent that and gave him a lack of talent around him, horrible defense, subpar running game, 
and a horrible offensive line consistently. If all that wasn't enough, let's talk about the drafting. Since 2009, the Lions have drafted eight Pro Bowlers. And there were others that were drafted by the Lions that didn't have Pro Bowl seasons with the Lions. We'll get into that as well. But eight Pro Bowlers drafted since 2009 that had Pro Bowl seasons while they were with the Detroit Lions. These one, these are names that you will recognize. Uh, Indama Kung Su, Darius Slay, Kenny Galladay, TJ Hawkinson, Ezekiel Ansah, Frank Ragno, and Matthew Stafford. Those are the eight Pro Bowlers since 2009 that the Lions have drafted. You may be thinking, well, what about Calvin Johnson? Calvin Johnson was almost perennially a, Bowl, a Pro Bowler with the Detroit Lions. Calvin Johnson was actually drafted in 2008, so he doesn't count for this specific stat category. Um, I did not include, as I said earlier, I did not include players that were pro bowlers that the Lions drafted, but they had their pro bowl years with other teams. Uh, And these players are Eric Ebron, who had a pro bowl season with the Colts, Larry Warford, who had a pro bowl season with the Saints, and Quandra Jiggs, who had a pro bowl season this past season with the Seattle Seahawks. So if you want to count those people in, um, and uh, there's also a punter and a kicker. Matt Prater was a pro bowler one year, and uh, Jason Fox, who's the punter, was a pro bowler uh, this year as well. Uh, In total, since 2009, there have been 14 pro bowlers for the Detroit Lions since 2009. And if you want to know how many draft selections the Lions have had since 2009, they've had pretty much all of their draft picks every single season. The Lions have had 96 draft selections since 2009. And uh, with eight Pro Bowlers being drafted in that time, that puts their percentage for hitting on draft picks. Excuse me, that puts their percentage at a whopping, mind-shattering 8%. The Lions have hit on 8% of their draft picks when when trying to draft Pro Bowlers. And if you want to include those who were drafted by the Lions but went to have a Pro Bowl season on another team, then that average raises by a massive amount to 11%. Um, I'm not really a statistician. Obviously, I have an English degree. <laughs> I'm not a math person, but in my rudimentary math... Um, this is what I was able to make out. I don't have time to look up the numbers for every team. I would be sitting here forever. Uh, but So comparing these numbers to other teams is very hard, but at first glance and maybe with a pinch of salt added for good measure, these numbers are really poor. So after that laundry list of, of notes and stats, it, it's very hard for me to say that the Detroit Lions did not waste Matthew Stafford they absolutely did horrible defense horrible offensive line inconsistent coaching bad drafting and he's still Matthew Stafford is still given everything to that franchise he's given everything to that city he wanted to bring a Super Bowl to Detroit so so badly and that franchise was just never enabling enough to give Matthew Stafford what he needed to have some long-term success. So wherever he goes, and again, I've already made a video about that. You should definitely go watch that. Wherever he goes, Matthew Stafford will more than likely instantly make that team a a playoff contender, a strong playoff contender. And I wish nothing but the best for Matthew Stafford. I think him getting out of the, out of the Detroit Lions franchise will be the best thing for him in his career. But He's already had one heck of a career already, but just because he's been on the Detroit Lions, and as I've just shown you, they've never enabled him properly, 
he's never really had the appreciation that he deserves uh, in the wider scope of the NFL. So that was a massive segment. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed that one. We're going to be moving on now to the NBA to a story that I saw earlier this week. And I, I had a long chuckle about this, but once I actually did my research and my digging, I was like, wow, this is, this is incredibly genius. Um, the Miami heat are using, uh, sniffing dogs to check for the coronavirus. And if you don't know about this story and you just heard that from my lips for the first time, you probably had a similar giggle that I did because I said, Sniffing dogs, really. Uh, the dogs are going to be able to detect the coronavirus, and not only the coronavirus, but the multiple different strains of the coronavirus. And my stupid brain, my uh, my ignorant brain was like, how the heck are some dogs going to smell a uh, an invisible virus uh, that, that's transferred, that's not even transferred um, through the air, it's transferred by contact and by, um, uh, by, by bacteria, obviously. Um and, you know, once I did some digging on this, I was like, wow, I, I, I am completely ignorant. This is actually, this is actually really amazing. Um, dogs, obviously, as you know, have a incredibly strong sense of smell, good, good hearing, but it's, it's the smell that really makes the difference here. Um, and some dogs, you know, have the ability to detect when a person is dealing with stuff like anxiety and stress. And if, I don't know if you, if you've ever had a dog when you were a kid or maybe your dog now, whenever you're feeling sick, don't they act differently? Don't they come to your side? Maybe they'll snuggle with you in bed while you, while you have some chicken noodle soup and you watch some football on a Sunday. The, your dogs do that. Some of them have the ability to detect when you are feeling down. Um, and a German study last year found that dogs were right 94% of the time when it came to coronavirus detection. That's 94%. That is amazing. That's, that's incredible. I, I could not believe that. Um, so the Miami Heat have now employed sniffing dogs. They're going to start allowing fans into the game, which kind of... It's an interesting dynamic, especially when you compare that to what's going on the rest of the NBA right now with, you know, a bunch of teams restricting jersey swaps with the enhanced rules that the NBA have had when it comes to leaving your hotel. Um, and now, you know, it becomes a question, well, are we going to have an all-star game? Are we going to start allowing fans back in slowly but surely? And the Miami Heat are one of the first teams to allow um, or becoming one of the first teams to allow season ticket holders back into American Airlines Arena and allow fans back into the game. And it is because of the sniffing dogs, and this is something that's already been done around the world, uh, especially at airports like Helsinki, Finland, and uh, Dubai, I think were the two airports named specifically in the report. Um, but uh, re uh, there was a quote here from Matthew Jafarian, who is the exec executive vice president of business relations uh, or business strategy, rather, for the Miami Heat. And he's saying researchers are finding that specifically that specially trained dogs can detect COVID on humans quickly and accurately, which, again, this blows my mind. So essentially what happens is fans arriving for the game will be brought to a screening area and the, do the dogs will walk up next to them and if the dog keeps going the fans cleared everything's fine but if the dog six sits that's a sign and it detects the virus and the feet and the fan will be denied entry so you know i i, I don't know if, i guess it works the similar way that your dog can tell that you're sick when you're at home i guess the dog can smell that you're sick when you walk past them and 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 um they'll let everybody know that that you have the virus um 
I'm, I'm assuming that a bunch of warning sirens, maybe an air raid siren will come out when the dog sits down. Just kidding. That would be, be a little funny though. Um, and of course, uh, other protocols, if, if, the, if the guest is allergic to dogs, they can go the, the traditional testing route where they can get results back in 45 seconds. All masks are, all, all, or excuse me, all guests are still required to wear masks. Masks must be worn continually and only soda and water will be sold at the American Airlines Arena and all, trans- all transactions will be cashless. So through a debit or credit card, I, I think this is, it, it'll be really curious to me, if this if this works as well as people are saying it's going to work, there's no real take when it comes to the story. It's more just like uh, a news reporting that you would get with your six o'clock news. I'm informing you about this because I read this story when doing some research for the show today or really for the show yesterday. And I was like, that is absolutely incredible. And again, I had a gigantic laugh and my mother would probably be ashamed of me for being so ignorant because my mother um, was a, is a veterinarian, has been a veterinarian for 20 plus years. So she's probably like, heck, yeah, you know, that's exactly. Exactly what you know. That's that's a great idea. Um, it really just also speaks to how great animals are. Uh, dogs are amazing. Uh, I'm not really necessarily a dog person or a cat person, but when it, when when there's stories like this, um, uh, it, it's incredible what animals can do. And uh, even it's even better when it allows us to start enjoying sports like we all desperately want to. Um, especially with this virus coming up on a year of being uh, effective in this country and. Um, with people definitely getting desperate to get back and enjoying their sports in person instead of being cooped up in your house all the time. So really interesting. Good on the Miami Heat for pushing the agenda and, um, you know, advancing uh, advancing the protocols in the NBA. If Now, if only if the Heat could actually start winning some basketball games. Now, that's a different story for another day. But good on the Heat. It'd be interesting to see what happens there. Transferring over now to the MLB. The... Baseball Writers Association Association of America and the Baseball Hall of Fame, for the first time since 1960, have will not induct anybody new into the Baseball Hall of Fame this season. Again, the first time since 1960 that that's the case, that the hall will remain frozen. It's the first time since 2013 that um, potential inductees to the Hall of Fame have not reached, that no one person has reached the 75% approval rating to get inducted. And this is pretty big news if you're a baseball fan. I am not the strongest baseball fan, so I was very curious to read about this and figure out what was going on. And I actually, the first thing that I actually did is I asked my roommate, who's a who's a gigantic race fan. I'm like, how how rare is this that nobody gets inducted to the the baseball Hall of Fame during a given year? And he said, this never happens. And lo and behold, he was absolutely right. This never happens. This is actually really insane and really crazy that nobody is getting inducted into the baseball Hall of Fame. This year um and part of the reason why is okay there's the baseball writing association of america the bbwaa um but we'll just say can we see baseball association of america is everybody okay with that uh, that annotation okay fine perfect that's what we're going for uh the baseball association of america the, the writers association of america it's such a long term but regardless um they meet during the season and obviously, fans can vote for who they who they think will 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 um, they who who can be a Hall of Famer, and then it becomes on the writers to vote them in and give them um, access and induction rights, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> That's probably the worst explanation of induction into in, inducting into baseball that anybody's ever given. But moving on, this is a live show. Sometimes we make mistakes. Um, 
This is the first season since 2013 that not one player has reached the 75% quota needed to be inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame. The three closest players were Kurt Schilling at 71.1%, Barry Bonds at 61.8%, and Roger Clemens at 61.6%. Now, it's really interesting because these people all have asterisks next mental asterisks next to their name when it comes to to baseball induction kurt schilling has been you know the the closest but kurt schilling in recent years has been an absolute absolute social media terror um he's had a number of social media gaps including supporting the capital raid um appearing to support lynching of journalists in a 2016 tweet and of course he was fired by espn um, as an espn analyst due to some transphobic and uh, xenophobic comments um, over the past couple of years. And, you know, then there's Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, who both players were accused of using steroids throughout their career. Barry Bonds has uh, denied willingly knowing that he used steroids, and Roger Clemens has completely denied those accusations altogether. But it brings up the question, how much should we bring morality into the equation when it comes to electing these Hall of Fame players? And... Just where do we draw the line between the art and the artist? And if so, do we reevaluate the process of inducting players into the Hall of Fame? Because I, I find the specific players extremely interesting. Where do you draw the line? For me, you the the more the morality line is is really clear. If this person, this former player, excuse me, if this former player has negatively affected people's lives enough now and it gets down to the personal level it's not just oh they said something really bad that some people don't agree with let's say let's let's go down to the the, the darkest corner of the street the darkest corner of the room say some a, a player sexually assaulted or sexually harassed a female that is grounds enough for sure and i think a lot of people will agree with this to bar them induction from any hall of fame whether that be the nfl the nba or the MLB, say Kareem Hunt becomes a Hall of Famer one day, or is in the process of becoming a Hall of Famer one day, you take a look at the incident that he had in the hotel where he kicked a woman, and you say, that is reason enough for him not to be inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame. Um, just as an example, that's where the line is for me. If there is personal harm or injury done to people, if somebody's lives have been permanently affected negatively, by the player in question being inducted into the Hall of Fame. That's where you draw the line. You know, I don't care necessarily. If Obviously, the things that Kurt Schilling said were, were horrible. Um, I, I do not agree with them. And that starts pushing on the morality as well because, man, those things that he said definitely could have hurt people. But words are words and actions are actions. If there are actions that the player does that harms another person... That is immediately grounds for me to say they should not be in the Hall of Fame. It doesn't matter what they did on a football field. It definitely matters what they did off the field, and this should take precedence over that. But in the case of Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens, the most rap, the, the, the most uh, you know trash that, that people have on Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens is that they potentially could have cheated. Now, cheating is a, an entire another slice of the pie here in the story. And... Again, cheating is is something that can always be accused, but not necessarily proven. We talked about the U uh, the UFC on the Tuesday show, the Tuesday slash Monday show, and 
Uh, I, I'm bringing the UFC into this because they've had a lot of problems with champions using performance-enhancing drugs, and of course, you know who I'm talking about, uh, uh, John Jones, Bo- uh, John Bones Jones, specifically with uh, performance-enhancing drugs. And then you take a look at somebody like in the NFL, like Josh Gordon, who's had a substance abuse problem since he's been in the league. You know, substance abuse and substance usage, is, and, and especially in the sport of baseball in particular, uh, is a big thing. So cheating, you know, depending on who you are, where you're from, and what sports your favorite, cheating may, I guess, may value or rank differently on terms of importance to you. And it's extremely difficult to to prove 100%, and there's always just an asterisk uh, on the names of these players. And should there be? I don't know. I, I think, again, my line when it comes to denying induction into the Hall of Fame is did you more – did you – physically harm somebody did you hurt somebody a specific person enough to the point where that specific action should bar you from entrance into the hall of fame and for me potential use of peds does not it does not matter to me necessarily uh and and it doesn't matter that you know they potentially have an asterisk next to their name these are great players these were great players, even without PEDs. And sure, you can argue about whether the greatness of their careers would have been where it would have been with or without these substances if they did indeed take them. And again, probable doubt, yada yada yada. I I don't think that should be enough to bar them from entrance into the Hall of Fame. And obviously, the 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 Baseball Writer Association of America, there they you know basically. Hold, they hold these names for 10 years. You have 10 years to get in, and then if you don't get in, you go to an era veteran-based committee in which they can vote you in as well. And it seems like with recent with with, with recent bias that these writers are just are declining to allow people that are accused of uh, using PEDs into the Hall of Fame. And when you have that, and then you compare it to the things that Kurt Schilling has said, and you compare it to some other things that other people have said, it's like where do you draw the line? Uh, and if so, do you need to change the process? Do there need to be more voters? Does there need to be a stronger stance, more some some more detailed guidelines on what does and what does not uh, exclude you from the process of being inducted into the Hall of Fame? And I think that's important questions that baseball needs to ask. Now, obviously, this is this is kind of a, uh, I guess, not necessarily a formality. It, it's kind of an awkward situation because coronavirus, again, is the culprit of why this is even news because there were no winter meetings and they, those winter meetings were held via Zoom, a Zoom call instead of physical actual meetings. So the committee that inducts players that have forgone or that not have forgone but have gone past their 10 years of eligibility to be inducted by the Baseball Writers Association of America you know, they were not allowed to meet. So that's why there's no people being inducted on that side of things. Uh, and, you know, that's why this is even news, but still the fact that since 1960, this is the first time this has happened since 1960, and then again since 2013, this is the first time that not a single person has reached a 75% mark to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. Um, it does beg the question, do things need to be reevaluated? Do things need to be changed? And where do you draw the line morally when it comes to separating the artist from the art, or, from the art that he's produced? And when it comes to the art that Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens have produced as players, I don't think that the asterisk next to their name is enough to withhold them from you know inclusion into the, 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 the baseball 
Major League Baseball Hall of Fame, as opposed to something like Kurt Schilling, who, although words are just words, and obviously he's very opinionated, he's got his opinions, um, you can definitely make the argument that his words were enough to hurt somebody, uh, and that by itself should be included in the Hall of Fame. Kurt Schilling actually removed, he requested removal of his name from consideration from the Baseball Writers of America, uh, the Baseball Writers of America Association, something, something, <laughs> baseball, baseball, yeah, yeah. Um, they actually requested removal of his name from consideration, uh, because he said, uh, I don't think I'm a hall of famer. If, if the veterans committee that meets deems me a hall of famer, then so be it. I'll wear it with honor. But he basically said, I don't want a bunch of biased writers choosing whether or not I make it into the hall of fame when, especially when I don't feel like I deserve it. So that's interesting in and of itself, but I feel like we're starting to ramble a little bit here. Definitely time to move on. Very interesting to see, you know, what becomes of this if there's any changes that happen to the induction process for the hall of fame uh, a couple of more smaller points here i just kind of have written down that i didn't necessarily prepare for the show um because i i felt like you know we, we were having some very heavy topics today not necessarily heavy in terms of emotional weight but like very extensive notes for the show today um and i've talked about it before the difference between being over prepared for a show and being under prepared for a show and not you don't always necessarily want to have a gigantic list of notes in front of you because it detracts from logical thought it attacks from engagement and especially when you're just reading notes especially like with the matthew stafford segment um the next the next note that i have in my notes here is really a phrase and that's uh tom brady has won the divorce between him and bill belichick this is something that i wanted to talk about yesterday but it kind of got swept under the rug while we were talking about Aaron Rodgers and where he potentially will land next. And I, I said during that segment that I that that I think that unfortunately for Brady and the Bucks, their accomplishments will be overshadowed by the fact that uh, everybody wants to psychoanalyze Aaron Rodgers. Everybody wants to evaluate what went wrong with the Packers and it, what, if anything, uh, Aaron Rodgers is going to do. And it's unfair for Tom Brady and the Buccaneers because they really have had a tremendous season. And I think that Tom Brady has absolutely 100% definitively proved that he is the greatest quarterback of all time and that he did not need Bill Belichick. Tom Brady definitely won the divorce. Now, I'm not going to say it's as wide of a margin as, as a lot of people are saying, like, Tom Brady has blown Bill Belichick out of the water. It was Tom Brady all along, yada, yada. Let's not take any credit away from what Bill Belichick did this year. He pulled together uh, a New England Patriots team that definitely could have gone something like 4-12 and and pulled them into a 7-9 and team with a, a dysfunctional, um, uninspired quarterback with a, with a defense that was missing multiple starters and... Uh, injuries galore on the Patriots and somehow Bill Belichick turned that into a seven and nine football team. And that's without a quarterback, without a defense and without Tom Brady, who again is the greatest of all time. So nothing to discount uh, Bill Belichick, but with that being said, it's hard to, it's hard to take a look at everything that's transpired this season and say, Tom Brady has not won the divorce between him and Bill Belichick. Um, it, it, it's interesting because of course the stories. And, and, and the storyline was that Bill Belichick wanted to get rid of Tom Brady. He wanted to draft another quarterback. He wanted somebody else. He wanted Jimmy Garoppolo to be the quarterback. And then Robert Kraft said, nah, we're keeping Tom Brady. And then that began kind of a, a, a slow rise in tension between Brady and Belichick and the New England organization. And that, and that and a change of scenery is what ultimately led Brady to go to Tampa Bay. 
and start fresh. And throughout the season, people were saying, well, the Bucks are 7-5. Are and five. They're not really doing all that well. Did, did, did really anybody win this divorce? And, of course, Tom Brady turned into Tom Brady, and uh, they won four straight games. And, obviously, now they're playing in a Super Bowl, and Tom Brady absolutely looks like the winner of the divorce. And he has proved that it wasn't just Bill Belichick. Tom Brady is not just a system quarterback. Um, he's an extremely intelligent football player, and he should be given credit. Now, I've talked about this on the show before, and a lot of it is also laying on Bruce Arians and Tom Brady just being able to click together. And if they wouldn't have clicked together, we might not be having this conversation yet uh, this early. We might be saying a year from now that, hey, in, in hindsight, Tom Brady has won the split between him and Bill Belichick. But because the Buccaneers are ahead of schedule and where they, at least I thought they would be, I didn't think they'd be in the Super Bowl this year, that's, that's for sure. Um, Tom Brady has really proven his his not only his work ethic but his talent as a quarterback, his ability to bring te- people together, and most importantly, you know his ability to lead a group of men to uh, one of one of sports' most prized occasions, which is the Super Bowl. Uh, it's it's important to look, especially when you look at the both the NFC and the AFC Championship game. Leadership is what prevailed and what allowed the teams that won to win. Uh, during those games, uh, Tom Brady's leadership was outstanding, um, as was Patrick Mahomes for the AFC Championship game. Leadership prevailed in those games, and um, Tom Brady statistically what didn't have his best season, and obviously his playoffs have been a little bit shaky. The defense has helped him through some games, but even still, um, it's hard to say that Tom Brady hasn't won the divorce between him and Bill Belichick. And... Um, Bill Belichick, it'll be interesting to see what happens next season for him, if he can duplicate the same success. But if he continues to have just so-so seasons, um, it really shows you what having a quarterback of the quality of Tom Brady can do for your football team, even if the talent around him isn't that great. Um, And the last thing I wanted to talk about on the show today um, was Kobe Bryant. I wanted to remember Kobe Bryant for about five minutes or so. Obviously, we're, we're that's that sounds so bad out of context, but I, you know I don't want to dwell on it too much. I guess is the better wording for that statement. Um, Kobe Bryant passing a little over a year ago today. I don't know if it was exactly the day today. I think it was the twenty sixth that Kobe Bryant specifically died. Um, just check this really quick here. I think it was the twenty sixth, maybe the twenty fifth specifically. Yeah, it was the twenty sixth. Of, of January. So it was yesterday, actually, that Kobe Bryant passed away one year ago today. Um, Kobe Bryant was a, a phenomenal basketball player, and I don't think anybody will ever debate that. Um, just remembering where I was when, when Kobe Bryant died, I was actually returning from um, um, a gathering with one of my, with a big group of friends in South Carolina, and I was driving back to Florida. And I, I saw the notification on my phone that Kobe Bryant had died in a, a helicopter accident. Um, and I looked down at my phone, and I shouldn't have done it um, because you're, you're not supposed to look at your phone when you're driving. I know everybody disobeys that rule, but mama didn't raise no fool. I, I don't typically look at my phone when I'm driving. And um, I took a look at my phone, and I read the words that were there, and I, I absolutely could not believe what I had seen. And... I, I kind of stared at my phone a little bit too long, and I actually almost got in a car accident myself when I found out that Kobe Bryant died. So I, I pulled off on the I pulled off the interstate and I pulled into a gas station and I just looked at my phone and I read that story and I cried. Um, I cried for a, a couple of minutes because Kobe Bryant meant so much to me personally as a basketball fan. 
Um, I grew up in South Florida, so I grew up a Heat fan. Um, but Kobe Bryant was always my favorite player for a long time. Um, and that might be weird for some people um, because the, the Heat, obviously, they got the first championship in 2006 with Dwayne Wade. And then um, I, 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 I was, uh, I think it was like nine or ten years old at the time. I didn't have any appreciation for that. Um, but regardless of that, my favorite player was always Kobe Bryant. I loved the the, gar- uh, the 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 purple and gold of the Lakers. I loved how Kobe Bryant always was so confident in life um, and everything that he did. And of course, you know, there's the the memes of him being a ball hog and every, and him taking every single shot. But um, having legitimately that Mamba mentality has gotten me through some very difficult points in my life. And just trying to emulate what Kobe Bryant was about has pushed me through some different moments in my life. And um, Kobe Bryant, just a tremendous athlete. And, and when I was doing sports in middle school and high school, I definitely tried to emulate that as best as I could. Obviously, my life has turned out completely different. I've, I've gone from wanting to play sports to being a bit of a theater stunt to now covering sports and and. You know, it's really interesting how, how things how things work out. And even with my work here and my work um, on, on radio and with sports journalism, I still take that Mamba mentality with me. Just I'm trying to do the best in every single instance that I can. Um, and it hurt my heart so badly when Kobe Bryant died. It hurt so many people's hearts. Um, this, this isn't anything revolutionary. It's not anything revolutionary to know that people loved Kobe Bryant. I, I definitely loved Kobe Bryant. He was again he was my favorite basketball player growing up, even though, you know, I was born and raised a Heat fan. Um obviously Dwayne Wade won us the championship, so you'd think that Dwayne Wade was my favorite player, but no, it was always it was always Kobe Bryant. You know, the battles between the Lakers and the Celtics in the late two thousands uh, and uh, well, basically throughout the, the first decade of the two thousands was something that I would watch religiously. I just found it so interesting and I, I had a deep love of basketball kind of early Early on, and I, I didn't I didn't necessarily share that because my house was predominantly a football house. But you know, I was every now and again I you know I, I'd you know make sure to catch uh, a Kobe Bryant Lakers game just because of of how much um, he meant to me as a player and how much he he really enabled everything that you'd want to be in your life. You want to be confident. You want to be strong. You want to be perseverant. And um, a year, a year later after his death, you can still see the mourning with people. You could still see how much he meant to everybody. And obviously, there's been tremendous aftermath from the death, some lawsuits, yada, yada. And it's just so sad that that just mur- makes the water murky on such an incredible person, an incredible basketball player, and a really, really good human, regardless of the mistakes that he made. Um, obviously, he made mistakes, and um, it be foolish to kind of ignore that when talking about how great of a person he was i mean everybody makes mistakes that's the other thing that everybody or especially me would love about kobe bryant is that he made his mistakes and he he made up for them he apologized for them and he moved on with his life and went on to do great things and affect a lot of people and touch a lot of people's lives so uh, we remember kobe bryant uh on the podcast today a day after his uh, a day after one year after his death um so continue to rest in peace, Kobe Bryant. You are incredibly missed by the sports world. You're missed by your family. You're missed by the fans of not only basketball, but of Lakers fans as well. And um, rest in peace. So with that being said, that has been episode nine of the Hard Headed Sports Podcast. We had uh, a long show today. It felt it was actually only about 50 minutes, but still felt like a long show today. Lots of talking, lots of notes on this one. Um, but again, 
always lessons to take away from the show. Definitely things to improve on. And thank you for all, thank you all for your continued support, um, day in and day out. It's been great to see, even in the opening three weeks of this podcast, it's been great. It's been fun. I've had an absolute blast doing it. Um, so with that being said, thank you all so much for listening and watching today. Thank you for the continued support. I will see you all on Friday. So stay hard headed, everybody, but have a nice day.